Welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart people who love dumb stuff. You're joined, as always, by Melbourne writers Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald. Hello. And producer Annabelle Lee. Hello. Coming up on today's show, why do celebrities keep telling us how often or don't bathe? <laughs> that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense at all. Do you mean how often or not often they bathe? How often or not often <laughs> they bathe. Plus, an Instagram influencer calls out another for systematically copying her content. Jennifer Aniston's very public birthday message to Justin Thoreau, and then the Good Weekend profile on Jocks on Frillo that some are calling the most interesting and intriguing celebrity profile in years. But first, Michelle, how was your week? How was my week? Not much happened. <laughs> I mean, it'll be funny for any international listeners because I think every week we get on this podcast and it's a different state of being down in Melbourne. When the lockdown announcement came out and it was such whiplash to go from everything's fine, zero cases to guess what, fam, you're going back into lockdown. I just stared at my computer blankly. Like Mitch plummeted, went through this really low mood and then rose back up. I was numb to the entire thing and then only realised the next day while in lockdown that I was even in lockdown again. Yeah, I feel like I do exactly the same thing. Like I definitely just sort of like stare into space, feel kind of numb. (laughs) There's a definite numbness about it, right? Yeah. And then a couple of days later, once you're in the monotony and it feels a bit like Groundhog Day, you're like, oh, I remember I remember and I don't like it. I remember all of this again. I mean, anything else happened in your week? I did go and get vaccinated. Well done. So it's the one thing that I can do right now and leave my home and leave my 5K radius for. So I went and had a chat with my doctor. I actually had a chat with my doctor about three weeks ago because I wanted to go get the vaccine and I thought I'm going to go get AstraZeneca. Sat down with my doctor, had a really interesting conversation, realised that I actually qualified for Pfizer booked myself an appointment, got Pfizer on Friday. And I've got to say, I'm feeling really, really excited. I know that might sound weird. Really excited to be fully vaccinated soon. I'm pumped. I felt like I was doing something for the community and I'm happy with my choice. Like very happy and very informed after the chat with my doctor. What about you? I also got vaccinated. I got AstraZeneca. I made the decision to go and talk to my doctor to make sure it was fine and suited to me. And they made me feel so calm about everything like the doctor honestly like came in with open arms and was like sit down <laughs> ask me all the questions and I did and it was wonderful I also feel incredibly relieved I think in times like this it is one of those things where you feel like there's a complete lack of control over almost every element of your life you yeah. can't control anything and I think making one decision one small decision that gave me control and gave me power felt incredibly relieving. Annabelle, I know you've got your appointment booked next week. I am so excited. I've got it written in my physical diary and it's also in my Google calendar. That's how excited I am. Because you'll really forget about that one. (laughs) But I think this is the important thing, right, guys? Like we always say, trust the experts, listen to the experts. And so what we will tell you is if you can, please go out and see your doctor and speak to your doctor. I think the three of us would all be in total agreement. A conversation with your doctor if anything, will give you more information and make you more informed. I'm very, very happy I had that original conversation, very happy with the results. So if you can, book a GP appointment or book an appointment with a doctor you trust this week. Yeah, that is our call to arms for you. Book an appointment with your doctor. Mish, do you have a recommendation this week? I do. I feel like this is the show that gets me through every lockdown, of which there have been six, so I've been watching lots of this. Would I lie to you on ABC iView? I watch this so much, I don't even know if I've recommended a 
it before. Does this sound familiar to either of you? I do think you've recommended it on the program before, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I tried to search through old episodes. I couldn't find it. That's what I've been watching. Apart from that, I've also watched Paris Hilton's cooking show on Netflix. Can we backtrack a bit? Because what if people haven't heard of Would I Lie to You? Why should they watch it? Would I Lie to You is almost like a game show where different comedians sit on different teams. There's like two different panels. They have to tell stories from their lives. Some of them are lies. Some of them are true. And then the other team has to guess what is a lie what is fact. Yeah, it's an incredible show. It makes me laugh a lot, that show, and I think is a perfect lockdown recommendation. It's British as well, and dare I say, British people are the funniest people on the face of the earth. Yeah, I would say that's true. <laughs> or at least maybe funnier than their American counterparts. Yeah, Aussie, or... Aussies are up there, surely. <laughs> I don't know if we are. <laughs> I don't think we are either. And Paris Hilton, very quickly, this cooking show seems to be everywhere at the yep. moment. I don't really understand the deal. Think of like a fever dream. Paris Hilton in a very bougie kitchen cooking very bizarre meals with celebrity guests. Episode one is Kim Kardashian. I'm not saying it's good. I don't want anyone to think that I'm recommending this as the best reality show ever. It's just intriguing lockdown viewing when you have fuck all else to do with your time. Yeah, well, people really have no excuse. <laughs> like, <laughs> you should be watching it. What about you? My recommendation this week is I have been struggling with podcasts sort of in the last six to 12 months. I don't really know what to listen to anymore. I think Same. when you, you make a lot of podcasts, it can be hard to know which ones to listen to. I mean, you and I deliberately don't really listen to any podcasts that could be even remotely similar to ours so that our ideas stay fresh. So I decided last Last night as I was cooking dinner to Google the greatest episodes of This American Life of All Time because This American Life is up there as one of my favourite podcasts. And one of the episodes that I saw recommended was from 2008 called Switched at Birth. And it's about exactly as you'd imagine, two babies born on the same day in the same small town who were switched at birth. What does actually happen? Weirdest part about this story is one of the mums kind of knew the entire time and didn't do anything about it for 43 years. Why? Well, you kind of get a sense of the story as you go. But it is... There's people pleasing and then there's that. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Because I can imagine myself, if it wasn't a human child, like if it was the wrong dog or something, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) That's been the wrong dog. (laughs) The wrong wrong dog's still a bit extreme. (laughs) 43 years. It is really incredible. As you can imagine, this American life do it so so well so if you are really in the mood to be transported podcast wise listen to this it it really blew my mind there you go Annabelle any recommendations I think the (laughs) listeners need recommendations this week do you have a lockdown rec I have been consuming a lot last night I actually watched a really good documentary on Amazon Prime called Val you might have seen it around it's about (laughs) blank faces over here (laughs) it's about (laughs) the stuff that Annabelle consumes (laughs) compared to what we consume no you'll love it it's about the actor Val Val Kilmer, who starred in Top Gun alongside Tom Cruise. He was right. in Batman. He was one of the famous Batmen. <laughs> famous Batman. <laughs> and surprisingly, I didn't know much about him mm. because that kind of generation of actors is my jam. Like the Steve Carells, the Tom Cruises, yeah. the Nicole Kidmans. I don't recognise him. Is that I, bad? I don't recognise him either. <laughs> well, apparently he's had a bit of a reputation in the industry for being hard to work with. Ooh. And now, so the point of this whole documentary, I think, is now he's just recovered from throat cancer and so he can't really speak properly and the documentary is narrated by his son. Oh, oh. that's quite interesting. And he's gone through a lot and it's just, yeah, so interesting. I would highly recommend it. There okay. you go. There you go. <laughs> Let's jump into our first segment of the show. I really don't have a better segue than that. (laughs) And we 
want to talk about why celebrities keep telling us how often they bathe. And that is not an overstatement. Suddenly in the last week, week and a half, we've had so many celebrities decide that they need to reveal to the world how often they take a shower or a bath. Yes, exactly. So this began kind of with Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis saying on Dax Shepard's Armchair Expert podcast that they don't regularly bathe their children. So they have a four and a six-year-old. And this was the quote from Ashton Kutcher. If you can see dirt on them, clean them. Otherwise, there's no point. (laughs) (laughs) He also admitted that he personally soaps up his armpits and his crotch daily and nothing else ever. I'm just imagining Ashton Kutcher like at the basin or at the sink, whipping down his pants, giving his like crotch a little bit of a once over and then walking away. I, I'm not sure. I'm not <laughs> sure about this. It also didn't end there. Mila Kuna says that she cleanses her face twice daily, but said she doesn't wash her body with soap every day. Now, now I am hardly one to come on this podcast and just shame people for the sake of it. <laughs> but I must. <laughs> I simply must. What's wrong with washing? Because then Dax Shepard and Kristen Bell also kind of bolstered this anti-bathing movement on The View (laughs) saying they wait for the stink when it comes to bathing their kids. Yeah, this was the quote from Kristen Bell. Once you catch a whiff, that's biology's way of letting you know to clean it up. She went on to say sometimes the kids go five to six days without a bath or a shower because they forget to bath (laughs) or shower them. Now, I'm not a parent, so I don't really care about the kids at all. Let your kids smell, let your kids run around, let them get dirty. But why the hell are adults, let alone very famous, very privileged adults, not showering? Well, Michelle, (laughs) Chillenhall has just entered the chat (laughs) and completed the trifecta. He was interviewed by Vanity Fair and was also asked about his showering rituals. I don't understand. He said, more and more, I find bathing to be less necessary. (laughs) I do also think that there's a whole world of not bathing that is also really helpful for skin maintenance and we naturally clean ourselves. Now, terrifyingly, this has been backed up by a few dermatologists this week. Like, obviously, it's a celebrity movement, so dermatologists and skincare experts have weighed in. Apparently, Jake isn't too far from the truth. Like, your body apparently generates oils. Those oils are important. If you strip them too much, it's not healthy for the skin. As long as you're washing, and I quote, your armpits, groin, and feet every day, The rest of you doesn't need to shower that much. And this is reminding me (laughs) of the debate last year where everyone was like, do you wash your legs? Like people who don't hand wash their legs are gross. How did we go from that one year ago (laughs) to people just be like, I don't wash anything. (laughs) A (laughs) pandemic, that's how. People have just like lost all hope. What's really funny about this is it became a big conversation on social and on Twitter and there was this hilarious thread about the showering shebang, I guess I'm going to call it, (laughs) where someone posed to The Rock, I bet The Rock doesn't shower. And he goes, (laughs) he goes, nope, I'm the opposite of a not washing themselves celeb. Shower cold when I roll out of bed to get my day rolling. Shower warm after my workout before work. Shower hot after I get home from work. Now, (laughs) an actor and comedian by the name of Gianmarco Ceresi retweeted The Rock's tweet saying, this is weirder than not showering. (laughs) And then The Rock came back again with, I think, one of the better tweets I've seen in a long time. 
Nothing weird about this, my friend. I work out <laughs> twice a day and then I go to work for 12 plus hours. I shower three times. Easy to understand. <laughs> to which Gian Marco tweeted, I really need to start shutting the fuck up. <laughs> I need to bring this up. I know that I'm going to piss off some listeners. Remember how last year listeners called me the epitome of selfish because I admitted on this podcast that sometimes I shower <laughs> twice a day. I'm sorry. I would prefer to be in the same camp as Dwayne The Rock Johnson <laughs> and be showering too much than showering every five to six days <laughs> slash not at all. Annabelle, how often do you shower? I mean, well, because I go to the gym when gyms were open. I shower once a day usually because I go to the gym after work oh. and I don't shower in the morning. So I shower at night. No, same. I shower like Almost always once a day. Yeah. But there are those days where you feel particularly sticky or sweaty or whatever. Or sad. And you need, <laughs> or depressed. And you need two showers. I don't do it regularly, but I'm not the epitome of selfish for doing it. And it's a great time to like play music and feel sad or happy or oh, boogie. I honestly <laughs> I honestly love to bathe. I love it. So Sarah is like an old wrinkly woman in her bathtub. Power to the rock, not power to the rest. <laughs> Thank you, next bitch. And now it's time for the quick and dirty. As always, we bring you the top five stories from the rough and tumble of the celebrity and pop culture news cycle. Zara bathes every day McDonald. What have you got for me? My first story. Quentin Tarantino vowed never to give his mum a penny due to childhood <laughs> vendetta. This is from the Huffington Post. If anyone's rolling their eyes going, why would I care about Quentin Tarantino? Same, but I do care nichely about this story. Yes. So 58-year-old Quentin Tarantino actually made a promise to himself at the age of 12, Michelle, <laughs> saying that he wouldn't share a cent of his fortune if he made a fortune with his mother, Connie, due to comments she made when he was a kid. Yeah. So Quentin went on a podcast called The Moment last month and some of the quotes are making news now because they are so batshit weird. Basically... Four decades ago, Quentin Tarantino's mum, Connie, who is now 75, made him feel small for liking to write screenplays and he is holding on to a vendetta four decades later. Yes. So during the podcast interview, Tarantino explained that he struggled in school due to, I don't know, general lack of interest. He also, and I quote, said he was officially known as the dumb kid in class. But he said around the time that he was in middle school, he, he started to develop a real interest and passion in writing scripts and he would work on them during class. But he said teachers weren't happy with it and teachers looked at it as a defiant act of rebellion. Yeah, so he explained that after getting in trouble with teachers at school for writing the screenplays instead of doing work, his mum was, and I quote, bitching at me about that. And then in the middle of her little tirade, she said, oh, and by the way, this little writing career, with the finger quotes and everything, this little writing career that you're doing, that shit is over. <laughs> so then he said to this podcast, when she said that to me in that sarcastic way, I go, okay, lady, when I become a successful <laughs> writer, you will never see one penny from my success there will be no house for you there will be no vacation for you no Elvis Cadillac for mommy <laughs> you get nothing because you said that he also went on to say he stuck by this basically and said there are consequences for your words as you deal with your children remember there are consequences for your sarcastic tone about what's meaningful to them think about this because this is ice cold you get nothing because you said that imagine <laughs> treating your mother the woman who birthed you into the universe and carried you around for nine months everyone's mom has said 
annoying, awful, shitty things at times. Like parents get cranky and tired and want their kids to focus in school. For her to be <laughs> fucking re- reprimanded and not given a cent of Quentin Tarantino's $120 million fortune because she made a comment four decades ago tells me more about Quentin Tarantino (laughs) than it does about poor old Connie. I mean, I agree with him to some level. Like, yes, we should be encouraging kids' (laughs) dreams. Like, that goes without saying. Let's not make children feel small. But this feels like some petty (laughs) shit. I mean, I said to you before we started recording, maybe his mum has done some other stuff in in his life to mean that he doesn't want to share his fortune with her. But I need to know that (laughs) because on this example alone, I'm a bit like, fuck, imagine combing through everything you've ever said over the course of your entire life and then being like, that could be one random thing that I said could be reason that someone doesn't give me a couple of mil. (laughs) Yeah, and dare I say, if you owe anyone anything, it's probably your mother or your parents, unless she's a psychopath, which we don't know, but it doesn't seem that way from these quotes (laughs) at least. I've not been given enough information to qualify that she's a psychopath. Give her something. Like you have $120 million. She brought you into the universe. A little bit of respect at the very least. Believe this, think this, carry out your life in this way. Don't blast your poor mother publicly. <laughs> i got to say, how many parents do you think are listening to this story right now who are going to go home and encourage their children to <laughs> like tenfold, being like, honey, that painting you always do, you're so good at it. <laughs> My second story. Sport kind of, but a bit of celeb too. <laughs> Sam Kerr confirms new romance after telling moment at the Olympics. That is from Yahoo. This is the romance we didn't know that we needed. If you guys missed this one, we have two main players involved in this story. One is Sam Kerr. She is our country's best soccer player. She is the Aussie captain, absolutely blitzed it at the Olympics. In 2018, she won the ESPY Award for Best International Women's Soccer Player. She was with her ex-girlfriend, Nikki Stanton, for almost seven years. They reportedly grew apart after they were both living on different continents. So Sam was living in the UK playing for Chelsea, while her ex-girlfriend was living in the US playing for Chicago. They're both professional soccer players. Zara, this week, We have a new development and it's very exciting and interesting. Yeah, exactly. So Sam and her ex-girlfriend, Nikki, hadn't actually announced that they'd split publicly, probably because they didn't realise they had to. Mm. Like they probably didn't realise that people really, really cared, but people really did. So in the Olympics, as you'll probably remember, the Matildas played the US in the bronze medal match. The US were just too good. But at the very end of that match, there were these incredible photos of Sam Kerr sitting on the pitch with another American player. They weren't just like consoling each other. It wasn't how you and I would console each other, Mish. It was like a bit more intimate than that. And everyone straight away was like, hang on a second. Sam Kerr hasn't posted with her girlfriend since September 2020. Could this be her new partner? Well, they were nuzzling each other's necks, like nuzzling into each other's necks and giving small kisses. And the hilarious part about this is lots of sporting pages, particularly the Team USA Instagram page, were sharing the photos of these neck nuzzles and these cuddles going, oh, what good sportsmanship. Yeah, well, there was this really interesting divide between people who were being super ironic about it, being like, what a wonderful example of sportsmanship, knowing full well what was going on, and other people who just took this (laughs) as just a sort of black and white, I guess, example of two people being really kind to each other. So finally, we got a bit of confirmation, Mish, on Monday night when Sam posted what was a really cute announcement to her over 600,000 Instagram followers. They were kissing, they're dating. What a lovely story. 
One of my favourite tweets about this before it was confirmed was from one woman who tweeted out, friendship has no boundaries. Win or lose, friends are still friends. To which someone replied, they're lesbians, Stacey. (laughs) (laughs) My third story. Jessie J apologised to Nicki Minaj and Ariana Grande for getting the story behind Bang Bang Wrong. That is from Cosmo. Now, I think everyone will remember this song. This song was everywhere in 2014. So we don't get ourselves in trouble with royalty infringements or anything like that. Do we want to do a dramatic reading of the lyrics? I mean, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll do a dramatic reading then, but Zara, you have to come in with the things that are in brackets. All right. She got a body like an hourglass, but I can give it to you all the time. She got a booty like a Cadillac, but I can send you into overdrive. Oh, you've been waiting for that. Stop. <laughs> hold up. Swing your bat. <laughs> See, anybody could be bad to you. You need a good girl to blow your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Now, (laughs) that song, which you'll absolutely recognise now, was one that Jessie J touched on in an interview with Glamour magazine. Now, as we said, it was from 2014 and she was talking about how the song all came together, Mish. In this interview, she said, Max Martin wrote Bang Bang and Ariana had been played it. We're talking about Ariana Grande, of course. And I had been played it and we both loved it. We just said, why don't we both do it? So Ariana stayed on the second verse. I recorded the first verse and then Nikki, Nikki Minaj, was played it in the studio and was like, I've got to jump on this. We didn't go to her and ask. She wanted to do it. I'll never forget. I was in my bedroom in my flat in London and I got sent the version with Nikki on it. I just sat at the end of my bed holding my phone, staring at the floor going, how the fuck did I land this? I literally felt like I'd won a competition. Yeah. This got quite awkward when Nicki Minaj then weighed in. She saw this article, took a screenshot of it and tweeted out, Babe, Jessie J, I did not hear the song and asked to get on it. The label asked me to get on it and paid me. How would I have heard the song? This was said by another artist recently as well. Y'all got to stop. Love you. Now, what she's referencing is this idea in the industry that Nicki Minaj somehow jumps on other people's bandwagons, like songs are put together. Apparently, Nicki Minaj listens to them, insists on being on them, and then they become a huge success. That is a myth in the industry. I don't know where that began, but I don't blame Nicki Minaj for being quite pissed off that this narrative is continually being spun when it's not at all the truth. Yeah, and I kind of don't blame Jessie J either if that's the story that she was told. Mm. Even more awkwardly, Ariana Grande was not played the song and decided to jump on it. She co-wrote the song. Yes. So Jessie J had to jump on Instagram and acknowledge the, quote, weird energy between her and Nicki Minaj in her apology before elaborating. I'm sorry I got the story wrong all those years. I was told you heard the song and wanted to be on it by someone clearly gassing me up at the label. Bless them and my naive ass. Thank you for clarifying I was wrong on that. A little bit awkward. Super awkward. (laughs) I mean, good on Jessie J for her apology. Good on Nicki Minaj for calling it out how it is. Yeah, weirdly, the narrative on Twitter was something like, oh, Nicki Minaj is being aggressive in her tone towards this, which is bullshit. When you read that tweet, it's like, y'all got to stop. Love you. How is that aggressive or snarky at all? Like if Jessie J is doing an interview where she's literally making it out that we didn't go to her and ask, she wanted to do it. Nicki Minaj has every right to correct the record on that. Yeah, absolutely. My fourth story, Jennifer Aniston posts shirtless image of ex-husband Justin Theroux on his 50th birthday. Truly one of a kind. Love you. 
That is from the Daily Mail. How aggressive of Jennifer Aniston. (laughs) (laughs) So aggressive. This is weird, but I love it. So Jennifer Aniston on Wednesday posted a selfie of Justin to her stories with the caption, happy birthday, JT. She then posted another photo of him topless with the caption, truly one of a kind, love you. Now, slightly unusual, slightly unique rather for someone to publicly post this way about a man they are now divorced from. Yeah, super interesting. I mean, I absolutely love it. And also credit to Jennifer Aniston for seemingly having very stable relationships with both of her ex-husbands. Like what a remarkable thing to be able to say you have. I do say, though, if I may, there is something deliberate about her putting this publicly. She could have picked up the phone and called him. She wants the world to know that they're on good terms. And maybe it's just so people know that she's a kind person. Mm. I don't know. But you don't post this without thinking that people are going to talk about it. Yeah. And almost undoubtedly, she did pick up the phone and call him and do a private thing as well. But to do both at once is interesting. Like she knows she has tens of millions of followers. She knows this is going to be news. She knows there's going to be a spotlight and lots of eyeballs on her power to her but it is a very interesting move right yeah exactly the two split in February 2018 which was about two and a half years ago so probably enough time for water under the bridge I would imagine and my fifth and final story fucking wild a WA mum blogger claims that her rival has been copying her content for five years that is from pedestrian Mish when you sent me this story yesterday I initially kind of laughed thinking that it would be (laughs) a bit of a frivolous Instagram drama story, but I must assure our listeners it's a bit more serious than that. Yeah, it is. So blogger at the simple folk underscore lives in WA. She has over 180,000 Instagram followers and this week has accused another local influencer of copying her content for more than five years. So we're not saying copying a couple of photos. We're saying systematically copying the style of content for years and years and dozens of posts. Yeah. So she did two things. She compiled a whole lot of these photos. It's like a dossier. Heaps (laughs) and heaps and heaps of photos to the point where you really can't deny the similarities between these photos. And then she also released a statement. She said, I am not sharing this next slide lightly. This has taken me over five years to build up the courage to post. This is a very, very small snapshot of what I've been dealing with for the last few years on here. I don't want to be the mean guy. I don't want to mum shame. There are no rules on Instagram. And for a long time, I was made to believe this behavior is normal. I'm posting this as a final call to hopefully have it stopped. She also added that some of the images had been recreated days, weeks, and even years after she had originally posted them and went on to say, I don't want this to get nasty and I don't want anyone to target this individual if you know who they are. This will be the last time I post about this. So she didn't tag the other person, which I really respect, but she did really clearly want the behaviour to stop. Yeah, she like very clearly laid down the boundaries and got her point across. I have a lot of respect for her for writing about this in the way that she has. I feel like it was very respectful to not release this person's Instagram handle. Like I've been looking into this story and I don't know who this other influencer is. I think a lot of people are probably in the dark as to who it is. But I think that's actually wise and I think that's smart and I think it's the better thing to do in the long run. I think this is the definition of being the bigger person in what would be a really disconcerting experience. Like I think some of the listeners might be thinking, okay, a couple of photos have been recreated. Who cares? It goes far beyond that. Like this other influencer appears to be copying outfits, copying interiors, 
copying almost entire lives to fit the life of the simple folk. So once you really see the level that this person is going to to replicate someone's life, it's really unusual and bizarre. It is very bizarre when you actually look at the images. We'll put the pedestrian article in the show notes so you can click through and see the many, many images that the simple folk compiled. But I absolutely agree with you. I think it goes beyond saying, oh, my God, that person copied my photo to, oh, my goodness, this person appears at the very least to be watching what I'm doing. And I think there is something incredibly disconcerting on that. So good on the simple folk for both calling it out but doing it as respectfully as she possibly could. Love that for her. Is that all you've got? That is all I've got. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, the most interesting and intriguing and everything celebrity (laughs) profile we've read in years. First, a word from today's sponsor. He's one of Australia's most recognised and adored celebrity chefs. After winning us over on MasterChef last year with his tattoos and his Scottish kilt, Jockson Frillo decided to pen a memoir called Last Shot about his life. And it's been a colourful life to say the least, peppered with crime, drug addiction and homelessness. It's a story, Jock says, of ambition and redemption. Only on the weekend, a little over a week after Last Shot hit shelves, senior writer Tim Elliott from the Good Weekend magazine published a rebuttal of sorts, suggesting that Jock's recollections do not align with with those of some of his peers and friends. Cue social media meltdown. So what exactly has Joxon Frillo been accused of and how much do those accusations matter? Zara, let's begin by addressing the elephant in the room. <laughs> the gigantic elephant in the room, which is that last week you recommended our interview with Joxon Frillo on the about podcast. About this memoir. About this memoir. We actually interviewed him on the books that changed my life. I really enjoyed the chat. You really enjoyed the chat. What I would say heading into this segment is do two things perhaps if you're still really intrigued with this story after we have a chat about it. Go and listen to our interview with him and then also read this profile and sort of come up with your own thoughts and come up with your own ideas about what might have happened here. But yes, we did interview him. Yes, we enjoyed his company. Yes, we also found this profile very, very interesting. All of those things can be true. Yeah, here's a snippet from that interview so you guys get a taster of what it was like. I had no desire to give up drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, in the mid-90s, but certainly when I emigrated in 2000, it was, you know, I think I'd had nine years of hiding an addiction. And, you know, when you're shooting up, at some point you start running out of veins that are underneath your clothes, you know what I mean? And and I think, in like, I'd do anything other than shoot up here in in my forearm, you know Mm. what I mean? Because it's like, you know, that was what everybody, everybody, that was the goal you knew, right? Track marks on, on, on your arms. And so I would inject everywhere around my body except from there because it was hidden. It's like, you know, I'm well known for never wearing shorts and there was a reason for that when I was younger. So this was my favourite interview we've ever done, right? Like I walked out of this interview saying to you and saying to my family and friends and saying to all of the shameless listeners, this story was unparalleled to any other life story I've heard of. Like I walked out just feeling like I had such a privilege of hearing this. And I still feel that way about that interview. But certainly this Good Weekend magazine profile piece, which was 6,000 words, 
did raise a lot of questions in my mind and I'm sure a lot of questions for readers at home. Yeah, so what exactly is Jock's story for those who might be coming to this a little bit late, right? We touched on it a bit last week, but Jock grew up in Scotland. He says he battled a teenage drug addiction. He found himself homeless before moving to Australia and getting clean and embarking on a really successful career in the Australian food scene and then later, Mish, in the public eye. A key part of his story as well is one about his relationship with celebrity chef Marco Pierre White, who he very much credits as, as I guess, a kind of father figure in his world. Yeah, Marco Pierre White was mentioned dozens and dozens of times in this memoir. Jock says he played a really seminal role in his personal development and growth. And so Marco Pierre White is a pretty big figure that we need to talk about here as well. Yeah, so what did the profile itself actually detail? I mean, before we actually share anything, we do need to remind people listening that it is currently a bit of a he said, he said. Jock maintains that he's told the truth the entire way through his memoir to the best of his ability and his memory. And his publisher, Simon and Schuster, also stand by that. But the premise of the article is pretty well described by the Stan First Mish, which reads, he is one of Australia's most celebrated chefs with a drug-fueled backstory to rival that of Anthony Bourdain. A staunch commitment to Indigenous ingredients and a Scottish gift for storytelling. But is the jocks on Frillo tale too incredible to be true? Yeah. So in summation, the main claims made by senior writer Tim Elliott, or rather the main question marks raised by him and some of the named and unnamed sources that he spoke to for this piece can be summed up as follows. That jock's description of Marco Pierre White as a father figure who helped him overcome homelessness is potentially embellished or untrue. That jock's on Frillo added dot points or milestones to his resume, like working at prominent restaurants or being headhunted by large companies, for instance, that friends and colleagues who say they were present at the time couldn't verify. The other claims are that he potentially exaggerated the severity and frequency of his drug use and that he depicted his connection and experiences with Australian Indigenous communities to be greater than what they actually were. Now, again, Jock denies all of that, as does Simon and Schuster. Marco Pierre White was spoken to for this Good Weekend piece and he gave this quote, Jock is not a bad man. He has a natural intellect and he's very nice. The only problem is that almost everything he has written about me is untrue. Yeah, and I think that's what obviously Good Weekend decided to lead with because such a core part of this book has been the influence that Marco Pierre White has had over Jock's life. Good Weekend did the maths and worked out that Marco's name was dropped 159 times over the course of that memoir. But it wasn't just Marco who kind of alleged that Jock's storytelling was perhaps storytelling. There was also another quote from ex-colleague Dietmar Sawyer who said, I have read several bad boy articles about Jock over the last few years and his fight with heroin, etc. Makes a good story, but I saw no evidence of that while he worked for me side by side for 12 hours a day for a few years. I chuckled to myself when I see what he achieved and how the stories changed. He said he looked forward to readings on Frillo's book, but, and I quote, if I know Jock, and I think I do, it should probably be lodged in the historical fiction section of the library. Now, I don't even know what to make of so much of this. I think one of the most difficult elements with questioning someone's history with drug abuse is if you're spending 12 hours with them a day, there's still another 12 hours that you're not seeing. People can be very, very good at hiding addiction. People can develop habits and patterns that mean that they are high functioning and that it's not detectable to the people around them. 
I don't know where I stand on that in particular, but I wonder if it's a harmful rhetoric to put out into the ether that if you can't tell that someone around you is struggling with addiction, the addiction doesn't exist. I agree with that. It's a big rabbit hole to get stuck into, isn't it? To start saying that we can only believe addiction if we see addiction. Jock has released a statement about this. He said, this is the story of my life. I've lived every minute of it, the highs and lows, and I stand by it. There is no question that some of my book makes me look pretty unsavory at the best of times. I carry the shame from these years, not pride, and it was a big obstacle for me to overcome when writing this book. Now, as we said, Simon & Schuster have also released a statement calling Last Shot a historical account written from the personal knowledge of the subject writing it. Jock Zonfrillo stands by the historical account he has given. Yeah, the managing director of Simon & Schuster, Dan Ruffino, doubled down. He told the Sydney Morning Herald, which actually publishes the weekend magazine, so a little bit awkward, that they might be pursuing legal action after this article was published. He said, we feel our sales prospects have been harmed by this article. We don't speak on behalf of Jock. He'll have his own reasons to take legal action or otherwise, adding that Jock's on Frillo was very upset with the piece. The publisher also did something very interesting, which also took issue with Marco Pierre White's rejection of some of Jock's stories. Now, one of the stories that Zonfrillo tells about Marco Pierre White is that he basically saved him from homelessness by realising that Jock was sleeping in the restaurant or around the restaurant and sort of gave him somewhere to stay and a little bit of money and consistent work. Marco Pierre White said he didn't remember that. What's interesting is that Simon Schuster told the Sydney Morning Herald that Zonfrillo's account of that story had been included in the 25th anniversary edition of Marco Pierre White's own best-selling memoir, White Heat, which was published in 2015. So, What's happened in this memoir, White Heat, is Jocks on Frillo has given this account. It's been published in Marco's own book. Now, I don't know if Marco's read that or not, but it's living in his own book. Yeah, an added layer that, again... I don't know what to do with it. Another interesting quote from Dan Ruffino was, we work intimately with the writer and fact check everything. We see what's on the public record. We pick up any inconsistencies and run anything legally contentious via lawyers. Obviously, our industry is red hot on this stuff post Helen Darville and James Fry. It's something we take very seriously. Now, again... Extra layers that we need to unpack. Yeah, exactly. So what I found really interesting is that Rafino even touched on the James Fry story because I think the James Fry backstory is really important here in the context of why this Jocks on Frillo piece went so viral over mm. Twitter and why people were so interested in it. Now, James Fry was a very well-known American author back in Oprah's peak, I would say, Mish. So he wrote a memoir called A Million Little Pieces that was actually eventually chosen for Oprah's book club a couple of years after it had been published. Now that accolade earned him heaps of money. The book sold like hotcakes, like it was the biggest selling book of its time. And it also generated huge interest in the contents of the book, which was about James Fry's reported crime-fueled, drug-addled, rebellious life. Yeah. So people, after Oprah picked this book, people started digging into Fry's story. And by early 2006, so what, four or five months after Oprah made it her book club pick, it became pretty apparent that chunks of James Fry's story were concocted. So an irate Oprah hauled him up on television to explain himself, where he did admit that he had not told the truth in some of his writing. 
Now that book, A Million Little Pieces, is still on bookshelves, but it has a note at the very beginning of the story, listed as a note to the reader, where Fry apologises and says that he has let down readers who have been disappointed by his actions. He goes on to say, My mistake, and it is one that I deeply regret, is writing about the person I created in my mind to help me cope and not the person who went through the experience. Now, this is all to say that the concept of people potentially embellishing their memoirs is rare. It's very rare, but it's not unheard of. Yeah, and there is absolutely no suggestion that these cases are the same at all. But I think even Simon and Schuster's recognition of the James Fry story really does sort of stir up even more intrigue in these kinds of stories because it's like, okay, well, it's it's a memoir, right? And a memoir by definition is someone's retelling of their own story. And we know memories are fallible. We also know studies and studies will show that you can put two people in the same scenario, ask them about what happened at the end of it, and both of their stories will differ very, very slightly. We know all of that to be true. So when you pick up a memoir, right, when you're picking up someone's work, do you have to have that level of understanding being like this is just their recollection and nobody else's? Yeah, and where do like differences of recollections end and glaring disparities begin? I want to put this to you guys because I know my own experience of reading people's memoirs. I've read a decent number over the years. I have always picked them up and had a raised eyebrow at the veracity of every claim made. I think we all know that our memories are fallible. Humans are fallible. Humans are also prone to exaggerating some things and minimising other things. Like that is just something that we all do. It's part of the human condition. Do you guys do that when you pick up a memoir? Like if something was exaggerated in a memoir and you found that out after reading it, would you be surprised? Because I would be thoroughly unsurprised. Annabelle. Well, yeah, they'd want to sell copies and stories have got to be interesting. So that's always in the back of my mind. Yeah, 100%. It's interesting. One of the only memoirs I've ever read where I was like, I think all the details here are bang on is the Vanity Fair Diaries by Tina Brown. Have either of you read that book? Because it's a compilation of all her diaries. So the details there are so specific because it's everything that she ever wrote down at the time. And that's why I actually think it's one of the most remarkable memoirs I've ever read. So recommendation on the record. (laughs) Interestingly, at the moment, I have started listening to the audiobook of Green Lights. I put out a thing on my Instagram the other day saying, I'm so bored of all my music while I'm running. I want to listen to an audiobook. Everybody said Green Lights by Matthew McConaughey, which is his memoir. Right. And it's narrated by Matthew McConaughey. So there is an air of theatre about the whole thing, right? But even the stories that he tells and the details that he gives, you're like... There's no way this happened word for word. I believe that the story happened, but like there's no way you can retell that. But it just, it it does pose an interesting question about what we actually expect from memoirs, right? Yeah. And I think you and I have disagreed slightly this week in that I think I don't really expect publishers to be fact-checking every claim made in a memoir. I don't think that's realistic. I don't think a memoir and an autobiography or a biography are exactly the same thing. I feel like memoir is a mixture of looking back at someone's life and finding storylines and finding plot lines that might be more neat on a page than they were in actual reality. I don't expect much of Simon & Schuster in this instance. I feel like if you're an editor and you're reading something and it appears to you like it's true and it's factual, that's almost enough. It's really interesting because I do think that there does need to be some level of fact-checking in memoir. But that said, it's like how long is a piece of string? How far do you go? Like how long do you spend asking people if their own story is true and how do you even verify that? Mm. I mean, what's very interesting to me is I remember when we were writing our book and we did not write a memoir, (laughs) but we did write personal essays 
And there were a couple of things that were going through my mind at the time. And we had so many conversations back and forth being like, how do I make sure I tell the truth? And I know that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say because it's like it's your own story. It's very easy to, but it's also very easy to look back on things with rose-colored glasses or to kind of insert an emotion that suits the narrative that actually wasn't there. Mm. And so all through that time, we were like, how do we do this? But no one can fact check that. In fact, no one fact checked anything we wrote. None of our words were fact checked. Yeah. The only time I got things fact checked to make sure that the events that I was retelling were as close to the truth as possible was the story of my parents' separation. And that time I sent that to everyone in my family. But that's just personal fact checking, right? Yeah. And I had a couple of people come back and be like, oh, this was actually two days after all. This was immediately after all I didn't go here I went here and so I think that was even proof of me being like wow I just assumed this was fact like I assumed my recollection of the story was completely holistic and incorporated everyone's experience but when you show even an innocuous story to the people who lived through it everyone's going to have a slightly different perspective on it with this memoir the issue is there's not slightly different perspectives. There seem to be quite glaring disparities in some of the quotes that were given. Yeah, and I think the one thing that we haven't touched on in the story of Jock yet is not all of these examples are particularly innocuous. I mean, mm. there's one glaring story that was told in this profile about how when Jock was working at a restaurant, he lit the pants on fire of a colleague who was injured by this. Jock was sued for it and the complainant won a fair bit of money, though Jock declared bankruptcy afterwards. So the complainant actually never got a cent. And this story for me, I think, and I wonder if you agree with this, but I think you probably will, Mm. is the biggest mark against his name and the memoir itself, because I think it is clearly an example where whether or not he intended, he inflicted insane amounts of damage on somebody else. Yeah. I think I should actually read this passage out in its entirety and we'll let you guys make up your mind. Think of this what you will. This is what Tim Elliott wrote. When I discussed this episode with Zonfrillo and his wife in Melbourne, they frame it as a practical joke gone wrong. In fairness, Jock was what, 24, 25 at the time, Lauren says. Jock adds, it was a couple of little burns on his finger. But Kramer's medical report at the time noted that he had suffered extensive burns and excruciating pain and was unable to work for three and a half months. Jock tells me he called Kramer's mother the next day to check on him and that she said, oh, he's all right, he's out surfing. This is a lie, says Crammer. For one, I don't surf and never have. I was actually at my GP's surgery getting new dressings put on my hand. Crammer sued Jock, winning $75,000 in damages in 2007. That same year, Jock's on Frillo declared bankruptcy. He never paid me a cent, says Crammer. So, I mean, we can muddle our way through and figure out, okay, well, what's real and what's embellished or what's untrue. I think this is one instance where we've seen Jock's story really deviate from someone's injury. Yeah, I agree with that totally. And when it comes to the fact-checking of books, what's really interesting is there was this piece in The Atlantic that I read in prep for this segment that basically said that books actually aren't fact-checked nearly as much to the level that you'd expect. And there's something about a book, and I don't know what it is about a book. I think maybe that it you can't edit it, maybe mm. that it's in like ink, that it's in print, that it looks so formal, that we assume that books themselves are like, facts and expert stuff and it's the epitome of information the highest level of writing and what's funny about this article and I'll give you the link Annabelle to put in the show notes is that they said magazine editors who are fact-checking often use books to fact-check their own work when the books themselves haven't been fact-checked so it's like this endless list but I agree with you it becomes very messy with memoirs because I I don't know how 
you even would fact check that. We are at a place in society that's quite unusual and that I think is new for humans in that we do have this real mishmash of reality with dashings of storytelling and dashings of fiction. Like we adore reality TV, but we know that reality TV is not reality. We know there are puppet masters in producers and editing crews behind the scenes concocting stories to look the way they do. We know that scripted reality is a form of media that everyone loves. We know that Keeping Up with the Kardashians and The Hills and Real Housewives and Made in Chelsea are all scripted but also reality at the same time. Like we are so at a place in society where we have this hybrid between reality and fiction and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing but if I enjoy it in television – I think I also enjoy it in memoirs, as confusing and discombobulating as that is. Yeah, it's a really, really funny one. I mean, I am very intrigued about what our listeners think, (laughs) Mish. Please come and chat to us. As always, we will have Your Say Friday on Instagram, but a lot going on here. Yeah, God, I cannot wait to hear the listeners' thoughts on this one because I don't even know where I stand myself. I have like a million different thoughts floating around in my head. So please come follow us on Instagram at Shameless Podcast take part in your say friday because i think there's going to be a fair bit of conflict in our dms yeah i think people are going to have many 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 different (laughs) thoughts about everything guys thank you so much for listening as always we are on instagram at shameless podcast and mish how can they support the show you can support the show by clicking subscribe on apple Podcasts, leaving us a five-star review when you just scroll down give us five stars that really helps us out or click follow on spotify annabelle anything to add nope i'm reverting (laughs) back to my old ways i love that thank you so much guys We'll be back in your ears on Monday. Bye. Oh, hi. It's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week. Now, every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time <laughs> to be in your ear holes. So essentially, each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.